The talk tonight is about loving kindness. Surprise. Um, it's about um, connection, protection, vulnerability, the benefactor. I mentioned that I had been teaching up in uh, British Columbia on an island for three weeks before I I arrived in Massachusetts. Uh, And spring is such an interesting time to pay closer attention. Uh, And usually the weather has been so inclement there that I haven't really been outside that much there, even though it's so beautiful. And this year the weather was much less rainy and stormy. So I tended to notice a lot more about the birds in spring this year. And at first I noticed that um, these ravens were always hassling uh, this nest of a crow right near my window. Every day the um, raven would come try to bother the eggs of the (laughs) the crow, and the crow would chase um, the ravens off. And then I noticed that... uh, this raven was starting to chase this eagle. And uh, I realized that the same thing was happening, that this ra- uh, the, yeah, the eagle was trying to steal the raven's eggs. So one day I was walking up this rocky beach, um, and I had a little time, which is rare when I'm teaching. And for about an hour, I had the great privilege of watching this eagle and raven like fighting. Um, And it was so different than humans. Like it was just so um, transparent what was going on. And and like watching little children. So this, I didn't see the eagle actually trying to get the raven's eggs, but because I'd been seeing um, this behavior for a few days, I kind of figured that that's what was going on. So this raven was chasing this eagle, and the eagle was just kind of maneuvering, amazing maneuvering, the raven maneuvering, but they don't, like, make contact. They're just, like, doing this whole kind of hassle, hassle each other. And then the eagle got really tired and went to this branch and rested, and the eagle landed right next to him and just waited. Just, like, time out. You know, and, you know, it's just so funny. Like, it was just right there. They were staring at each other. And the eagle's like a little dog going, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the raven waits. And then the eagle takes off, and the <laughs> raven starts hassling it again. And they do this thing for, like, ten minutes until the raven's exhausted. Oh, no, the eagle was exhausted. The raven seemed to have much greater endurance. And then the eagle lands in another branch. The raven lands right next to it, and they don't bother each other. It's like some sort of understood, like you get to have timeouts, you know? They did that for an hour. And after a while, like at first it looked like kind of hostile and awful. And after a while, the timeouts were so cute, like and innocent. Um, and it reminded me of watching kids. Like, you know how they'll just do this whole hassling each other thing and then they get tired and they make up. 
So they were totally friendly when they were on the branch and then totally like bothering each other in the air. And it reminded me a lot about us humans. You know, it's just like, except I don't think we take enough time on the branch. (laughs) If you look at us on the planet, it's like we get so caught up in hassling each other and we forget about peace. And it's almost like they would, they just let each other know that they're not going to each win. They let each other know, no, this is my territory, this is my territory. And then they let it go. Quite interesting, kind of refreshing, you know, because it includes this kind of intense vulnerability that we're all born into, basically. And a lot of our self-hatred, a lot of our aversion, a lot of our desire is just avoiding this very deep thing that we all share, which is that we never know what's going to happen that life is alive, that it's changing. There's this continual shift of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's like we got here yesterday, and it was this beautiful blue sky, not even a thought of a cloud. And there's these beautiful, amazing thunderstorms that you probably wouldn't want to be out in in terms of living out there. You know, it's like, Shelter, warmth, food, these just basic vulnerabilities that we all share. We're born into this world. So it takes a lot of courage and compassion to come on retreat and to really look into what it would be like to stay on that branch and to not fight anymore, fight with life as it is. You know, to really come to peace, to stop the whole war of manipulation and control. The Buddha described the experience of loving-kindness as the moment that a, a mother cow looked at her newborn calf. Very grounded, Amazing imagery, a cow, not a human, very instinctual. And it's important to really take that in, like what is that moment, whether it's a father cow, a mother cow, but it's that moment of connection in this, you know, world of vulnerability. And this this moment of connection includes understanding that Labor is hard. Giving birth is, you know, usually people don't describe it as like a picnic. We know that a child that's born in this world is going to have its joys and sorrows, yeah? But at that moment of connection, boy, do we wish a newborn well. I watch like people that, you know, become grandparents or great grandparents and you watch these beings that like <laughs> just melt around newborns. You know, you watch humans around newborns and very few people go, eh, you know. <laughs> so what? It's just the, it's a very human thing to look at a newborn and go, Oh, 
well, that's what we're doing here. That moment of, oh, is what we're cultivating for ourselves. And it's just amazing when you think that this is the teaching, that you're learning to tune into that place that we all share. We share vulnerability, but we also share connection and wishing well. It's there. We don't make it happen. It's tuning into it. So that achingly vulnerable place makes possible this deep care. It's almost like we know that babies will die without love. Humans actually will die. We need, we need connection. That's how dependent we are on it, how we are dependent on each other. There's a quote, uh, like a poem that Krishnamurti wrote, a great spiritual teacher um, from India. He said, just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that newborn leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, wind, darkness, and light. So there's this phrase, the first phrase I was given when I learned the metta metta meditation was, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. So that means that we understand that there's a certain amount that we can't protect. These phrases are very paradoxical. When When you relate to a newborn, you know that you can't protect a newborn from the vicissitudes of life. But we do our best, yeah? Of course we do our best, given that we're born in the human world. So inner harm is probably the most important. It's, it's when we're identified with greed or we're identified with aversion that would cause harm self-hatred that would cause harm, fear that would cause harm. It's this inner harm that we're wishing protection from. So when I first did these phrases, I kind of assumed that my understanding with them would stay the same. But it didn't. It's like as I did these phrases over years and years and years, uh, my understanding has changed of them. As my understanding or wisdom has deepened, I, I understand more fully what the phrase actually means. So in essence, it's like the deeper your wisdom, the deeper would be your wish for somebody. It's a very powerful process. So please, you know, try to take that in mind that as you do the days that come, it's like, it's... It's important to be humble in the best sense of that word and the healthy sense of the word, that it makes space for learning, really learning what these mean to you, that there's not an assumption that you have going to have a fixed understanding and then we're not going to learn. 
So we're really wishing people to be free, free, free from harm, especially inner harm and the harm we can do to others if we're not protected by mindfulness or we're not protected by loving kindness or compassion. This afternoon I I went to the pond nearby um, and uh, my conditioning from very early on in my family, people were just horrified of snakes. I mean, just major phobia. My, My mother and sister couldn't even see one on television. Just... I had a, a sandpipe practice in Hawaii for a while where you have these little toys. You know, the, the therapy room is filled with every, everything in the universe is supposed to be represented in miniature. So, of course, I had some rubber little snakes. And when my sister came for my wedding, she actually wouldn't stay at the house. She didn't even see them. She heard that I had a few toy snakes that's how, but you know, it's funny, but that's how painful this phobia is. It's just, she just can't handle it. So when I was a little kid, like, I noticed that they were like nuts about snakes, but I fought it. Like, I'd, I'd play with little garter snakes, but I kind of got some of it. You know, it just kind of went in by osmosis. So today I'm walking over to the pond and this <laughs> water snake came over the road and into the water. And just like the moment, the first moment of contact, seeing it, it's like, I just see it. It's just perception, right? This black thing going along. The next moment, it's like, inside, it's like, you know, snake, you know? It's just like unpleasant fear. And then what? What's the protection? Me understanding that that being is worthy worthy of connection, of love. You know, and it's like I've had to practice this and practice it and practice it. Today, I connected. You know, it was great. It was like I didn't go over to try to, you know, pet it. You know, that's... So we don't necessarily mean that metta is embracing something that might be you know, not our best friend in terms of our heart, but certainly we find the distance where we feel safe and make the connection. So loving kindness, I think, is the most powerful practice for working with fear. It's like we tend to leave ourselves and abandon ourselves and just split. We, we just don't stay present. And loving kindness gives us, a, us this ability to protect ourselves. We stay connected. We wish ourselves well. And then we do what's appropriate. But certainly, all beings are worthy of love. This is a a poem by Raymond Carver. It's called Late Fragment. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did.
And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on earth. That's so simple and so beautiful. So remember when this morning I was talking about like the sense of if you think of your body like an empty glass, just your body, heart, mind like an empty glass, imagining that there's this practice of filling yourself up with well wishes and that you just, you don't really have to move on to anyone else because it's natural that eventually if you fill something up, it's going to spill over. And I've had people do this. I've had people who just stay patient for years and just do the metta for themselves. And eventually it spills over. One time in the middle of a sitting at a retreat, this woman raised her hand, and it was during a silent sit. And I'm like, no. You know, it's a silent. And she's like, I could wish it for someone else. You know, it was like, shh, you know. But it had been like 15 years, you know. <laughs> and she wanted to, like, tell us all about it right at that moment, you know. <laughs> but it was that powerful because she didn't believe me. She didn't believe this water spilling over thing, you know. And it took a long time. I had another woman who she couldn't do any other phrase but one phrase. She was really abused as a kid. She couldn't do, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. It just didn't. It was too painful. But she could do, may I be happy and peaceful of heart. May I be happy and peaceful of heart. And it was a similar thing in one, but she waited until a question and answer period. And it was the same thing, like, wow, I could do another phrase. And I could do that phrase. It was like 16 years. Now, it's not always that slow for some people. Some people take to metta like a fish in water. Some people don't. Some people take to the Vipassana practice, the mindfulness practice, like a fish in water. Some people don't. Some people take to neither (laughs) as easily. Some people take to both easily. It's It's just different for everybody. But being where you are really matters. It's like um, Greg was telling me that someone asked about wishing somebody well that's dying. Well, you can do the, the phrase, you know, may you be strong and healthy of body. Because anyone who's dying still has places in their body that can be wished well in that way. My father was a complete, utter mess before he died. Like, unbelievable physical agony. But I could still wish him the comfort as best as he could have before he died. I could still say, may you be strong and healthy of body. It's again, it's always this paradox, these phrases. And it takes doing them enough to get the understanding of what they mean. And if, like, there are people who are wishing someone who's sick or dying or themselves with chronic pain, they skip the phrase. It's fine. Just skip it if it's not connecting or it's bringing up a lot of stuff. Some people just whisper, 
metta. No phrases. Some people do it in Pali. Some people do 17 phrases. <laughs> it really, you know, it's like, it's, it's important that you feel permission to find your way with this. And if you're new to it, it will take some experimentation. If you've done it a while, it'll change. It doesn't stay the same. So one aspect of this practice is that we're healing the disconnect from ourselves with ourselves. Again and again, it's like a healing of the disconnect every time we come back to ourselves with loving-kindness. It's reparative. It's renewing. A basic aspect of this is concentration. So if we turn the lights out in this hall... And if we said our attention was like a flashlight, a kind of typical human mind is pretty much the flashlight would be going all over the place. It's just we we tend to be normally scattered. And the concentration of the metta practice is really, it's like you're taking the flashlight, which is your attention, and really just focusing on loving kindness. You're focusing on loving-kindness. You can connect that loving-kindness with your body. You can connect it with your heart center. You can just have a sense of, a, of general awareness with the loving-kindness. But a deep concentration where you're really connecting the loving-kindness, the attention with loving-kindness and some being, um, there's a feeling of being perfectly put together. It's like if you, if you had one of those old-style cameras that when you look into the, the, the um, lens and you're trying to focus it, this is not the digital <laughs> type, but the old-style, it's literally like we come into focus. That's the power of, of the loving-kindness and um, concentration. It can feel very quiet. You don't have to feel anything with the loving kindness, but quiet, it, it can be very quiet. It doesn't have to be any particular way, and the loving kindness can be there. So, another reason we teach the loving kindness is that when you're healing this disconnect from yourself to yourself and you're feeling this feeling of being more put together, uh, it makes the heart more soft and open so that we can be with things as they are. So it actually helps us get more present and less resistant to how the world actually is, this range of joy and sorrow. Um, You might not see the result of that during this retreat. You might leave the retreat and then have something happen and notice that you're much kinder to yourself. It's very mysterious that way. Please try not to measure it as you're doing it because you just can't tell. 
often we see the result after we leave. I had a a self-retreat in Hawaii um, last year uh, where I went to the speech late in the afternoon thinking there wouldn't be many people there, but it turned out it was kind of a vacation week and there were a lot of tourists there. And I felt very vulnerable kind of being in retreat and kind of walking up this beach. And I, I kind of went up behind everybody and was sitting there thinking, uh-oh, I made a really big mistake bringing myself there because it was just felt too vulnerable. Um, and then I started watching this father of a newborn. The, the baby was pretty small. I don't know if it was three months old or five months old. And you could tell the mother was just totally pooped. And she just kind of laid down and crashed. And the father took this baby to the edge of the water, standing there. And it's one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. Watching this father, which was not exactly like my experience <laughs> with my dad. And, and he spent maybe up to about three hours with this baby, getting this baby used to the ocean. So slowly, it was imperceptible. And so gently and kindly that the baby didn't ever feel unsafe. Yeah, so like my father would have just sort of thrown me in, you know, and expected, you know, me to swim and to stop complaining if I drowned, you know, somehow. You know, that was the kind of tough, you know, sink or swim attitude. So this was like a revelation to me to see this like care. So he just stood by the edge of the water. He didn't even go in himself and got the baby used to being like in the sound of the water and the smell and just being there. And then he went into his ankles and just like, just over hours, very slowly bringing this baby in, getting the baby used to a little more, a little more. And then he was up to his waist and just still the baby hadn't touched the water yet. This is the metta practice. This is what we're doing with ourselves. If you're sleepy, you bring the metta in to connect with yourself, just like this father with the baby. If you're bored, you're bringing metta in with yourself. You're getting used to boredom. Like the, it's just like the ocean. It's just like your experience. If you hate yourself for being bored, you're disconnecting. If you hate yourself for being sleepy, you're disconnecting. And try to remember this image because it's so powerful. It's like you don't have to drown in the boredom. You stay outside of it, like on the edge of the water, and get your heart used to it. It's very powerful imagery. And then, and then like, he put his, like, little kids, you know, like, this is a little baby. He put his feet in it, and the baby's like, Rah! you know, like really excited and then scared, you know, and it's like he didn't force it. He just hugged the baby, got the baby reassured, right? Connected, connected again and again, again and again. And then they slowly went in. And after like about two hours, two and a half hours, the baby was not afraid because he knew his father would what? Not let him get hurt by it. Total trust. So the idea of the wordless metta 
is very similar to this kind of trust where you just say to yourself at the beginning of a sit, my intention, this is my intention, may my mind or may my heart abide in loving kindness. That's a resolve. It's a force of purity. And it's really powerful. It's like trusting that you have the ability to tune into loving kindness and trusting that it's there. And it doesn't work overnight. It's like it's very slowly you start trusting the wordlessness of the metta because it will feel very vulnerable to just make space for this love this interconnectedness. And then you'll get sleepy. And then you'll judge your practice (laughs) and hate yourself again. And that's okay. It's like then you step back. And by sending metta to the self-hatred, I don't mean embracing it to the point where you're hating yourself more. That's not what I mean. By caring about the Self-hatred, it's almost like you step out and back and just almost see yourself from a distance. And it's like you find that, like the father cow, like that father with a baby, and you go, oh, it's okay. But you're not getting lost in that self-hatred tape. You're just caring for your whole being. And then if you can't do that, you shift to the benefactor. So you're firm. You know, you're not meant to just kind of get lost and dwell in the self-hatred. You shift to benefactor. You shift to maybe some chipmunk or something. You go to your breath. You really work with it as skillfully as you can. So you don't have to drown. When I was um, a little kid, my sister had a baby when I was um, 10, and she was 15, and she couldn't handle it. And she had another baby, and then another one couldn't handle it, couldn't handle it. Um, And it was really natural for me to want to take care of those kids. Even though I was so young, it was like that care felt like my true nature. And even though it was really hard, like I was not, I was neglected and had a very hard life, so it wasn't like I knew how to do it. I was probably the wildest aunt you could ever imagine. I mean, it was like... um, they had a really good time, you know. <laughs> but eating three meals a day wasn't really part of the program, you know. It was pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> and the only rule that I had was that I had to have the kids home by eight or nine at night. So I had them, like, early in the morning till late at night. And, you know, we just played. Uh, and I felt there was this part of me that was so broken that healed in that process. Like I, it was so interesting that the rest of my family couldn't respond. And it's, I don't feel like I did a great job, but I felt like I really got 
that that feeling of just like not letting them get to the point of, need, you know, ending up in prison or a hospital, mental hospital, I knew I could do that for them. And it, it was surprisingly, it healed a lot of my heart by connecting to their brokenness. It healed my own brokenness. There's a um, saying, we mo- most of us know who C.S. Lewis was. He was a great writer the Narnia, you know, stories he wrote. Um, And he said something. Um, He had been single most of his life and fell in love late in life. And when he finally let himself fall in love, this woman got cancer pretty, pretty soon after he let himself feel this love. And he said, why love when it hurts so much to lose it? And I thought that was so beautiful. It's like he let himself feel this love. And it's like we can't control it. We can't control what happens when we let ourselves love. That's why it's so hard. If it was, if we, if there wasn't impermanence, if we could control things, we would all love so much easier. But it's because we can't control things that it's so difficult. So I felt very lucky that I learned when I was young that even though I couldn't control these kids very well, um, I was outnumbered. And it turned into three kids. When I was 17, I had three. I, I really got that when you have three, you're, you really lose control. Um, it felt so good to let myself feel. And I think we get so surprised. It's like (laughs) the heart feels. I mean, isn't it amazing when we're always surprised that we're feeling something again? We have this idea, oh, I'm sad. It's like, why am I sad? Well, maybe it's just that we don't even have to know. That it's just we're feeling sad. It's okay. It's It's this amazing instrument, this heart. And then we try to talk ourselves out of what we're feeling. It's kind of funny. Benefactors. You've probably auditioned some if you're new. Um, we really encourage you to try to stay with benefactor for you know a day or two. Try, keep trying to work with it and to work with what's easy. And if you have to shift to something like um, a non-human being, I mean, I don't think anybody could have a harder time than I did with metta, actually. And I really, I want to say it, if I could do this practice, anybody could. Because I had a very difficult time. And I couldn't find, not only couldn't I find a human benefactor, but I couldn't find anything in nature, and I ended up with an inanimate object, a teddy bear. And it was so, I could, all I could tell you is that I felt so pathetic. Like I'd just sit there with my teddy bear going, oh great, an inanimate object. You can't even feel metta for an animate thing. You know, it was just like the, 
you know, may I be happy and peaceful. And there'd be this voice that went, yeah, right. You know, just like the sarcasm that was dripping out of me when I would do this practice. It was awful, really. It was so hard. And I, it was to make a connection with myself was the difficulty. I was the difficult person. So if you can find any benefactor, I mean, that's a category, right? If you can find anything that you feel a connection with, you're fortunate. It means you've had the karma to have some connection. And it's some people don't have that. You know, it's really a fortunate thing if you can find something. And it's meant to be easy. When we first did these practices, I did two months, my first retreat of metta, And I didn't move off the benefactor for a month. You know, we're we're meant to really cultivate easy. It's a form of metta for oneself. And certainly, yes, at times it gets dry, and sometimes you keep it going when it's dry, and sometimes you shift. But in actual fact, just keep remembering you're not meant to go colliding into these difficult categories, you know, like working with our president or... For example, you know, you can kind of, whatever, you can kind of feel like you should do somebody really difficult, but try not to do that yet. I was fortunate to meet a teacher named Deepama, who some of you might have heard of. Uh, She was from India. And she has inspired me a lot because she was a laywoman. She had a child. Um, but mostly she inspired me because she could really give a blessing. And she was, like, incredibly wise. But she also had this incredible, unconditional love. And it, it was just like if she came in here, I mean, she would bless the flowers, the Buddha, the floor, the bell, you know, people, it was just like, she was like this fountain of blessing. She really developed the loving kindness. And toward the end of her life, um, well, at least, you know, when she, her last time in America, when she was here, um, she had heart trouble, like a heart attack, and we took her to the hospital in Worcester. And when she came out of surgery, she was still blessing people. She was blessing the nurses. She was blessing the, the sweepers. She, she just had it so deeply cultivated, and everybody loved her. The doctor gave her free treatment there. They recognized a saint in Worcester. <laughs> That's where I'm I'm from around here. You know, in Worcester, for my people to recognize a saint, it's like crazy. You know, that that means it was really strong, folks. You know, it's just like, oh my God, they felt it. That's how powerful the ability to give a blessing is. So that's also what we're doing. Just one moment when you can go look at somebody and say, May you may you be happy. It's very different than the usual stuff that's going through our head, right? Just pay attention to the usual stuff going through your head for five minutes and then say, may you be happy. It's completely different. 
And we keep judging it as not good enough. Like somehow may be happy. Just we, we don't even have to feel it. All you have to do, it can be dry as crackers, dry as saltines, a whole day of dryness. But if you know the difference between being able to have a dry phrase, may you be happy, and it's a huge difference. You know, this don't underestimate the power of saying, may I be peaceful. I had a, um, one of my, I think I taught the first, <laughs> my first three month retreat when it was like 1982. And I had worked at a, a mental hospital without training the year before that, the night shift. Um, and I had this boss that decided to come to the three month retreat that I was teaching a couple years later. So it was really fun <laughs> to have my boss sit the three-month retreat and for me to reverse roles with him. It was really fun. Um, and he got married about a year after he came to the three-month retreat, and his wife came to this retreat. And I'd never met her before. She came in for an interview. No, she asked for a special interview. She was afraid to ask this in front of people. And she said, you know, my husband, when he comes home from work, and he's really stressed out. Like, he comes in the house. And, and the question was, is this, like, meta? Is this okay? And she said, he comes in and he, like, slams the door. <laughs> may you be happy. And slams it. And then he's, like, really angry. And he comes in and he turns the light on. May he be peaceful. And then he, like, bams the bathroom door. <laughs> may you be liberated. You know, and she said, is that meta? <laughs> I'm like, well, he's trying. (laughs) He's upset, but he's really trying to keep it going. You know, but it was really interesting. (laughs) May you be peaceful. (laughs) Sometimes it's really hard, but he was trying. I think sometimes we have this idea that the metta is supposed to be this blissed out, perfect thing, when sometimes just getting a crumb. You know, we have a cake and we think we should get the whole cake, but really we get this one little crumb and we judge it as not good enough, but it's really a lot. So it doesn't have to be some big epiphany and the benefactor doesn't have to be Dipama or the... Dalai Lama. And I'd like to read a poem about this. It's called Happiness, and it's about the simplicity of connection. And that that is loving kindness. So this is by Raymond Carver again. And he says, Happiness. So early, it's still almost dark out. I'm near the window with coffee and the usual morning stuff that passes for thought. When I see the boy and his friend walking up the road to deliver the newspaper, they wear caps and sweaters, and one boy has a bag over his shoulder. They are so happy. They aren't saying anything, these boys. I think if they could, they would take each other's arm. 
It's early in the morning, and they are doing this thing together. They come on slowly. The sky is taking on light, though the moon still hangs pale over the water. Such beauty that for a minute, death and ambition, even love, doesn't enter into this. Happiness. It comes on unexpectedly and goes beyond, really, any early morning talk about it. They are so happy, they aren't saying anything. So please remember that the phrases are meant to help us tune into the metta, which is wordless. It's the experience of feeling connected or interconnected. And we need, we need the phrases and we need the silence, the wordlessness. And take your time with it. Sometimes I, I might go very, very slowly with the phrases and just take each one in very slowly. And other times I would say them very fast to keep myself awake or to stay interested. Sometimes when I would be doing a benefactor or a dear friend, I would change the outfit that the person was wearing for each phrase. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's a long day. You're going to need a lot of different tools to keep yourself interested. And sometimes you just have to let it be dry. It all will happen. And a lot of it will depend on how much energy we have. If you have a lot of energy, it's easier. If you don't have much, it's harder. And you can't control that. The energy will go up and down. Like rain, wind, darkness, and light. It's not personal. Sometimes when I do the walking practice um, and loving-kindness practice, I have the earth be my benefactor. And it's so healing. And it feels so healing for the earth to be related to that way by a human. And it's a great thing to do if you feel disconnected. Just your foot, the bottom of your foot touches the earth and you wish her well. Another foot touches the earth, and you wish her well. It's establishing that connection, healing that disconnect. When we bow, it's like when my forehead touches the ground, I really thank the earth. When the Buddha, on his full enlightenment, when he was assailed by Mara, doubt, what did he do? He put his hand in the earth and asked her to witness his enlightenment. That's incredible. He didn't ask, you know, his uncle. He didn't ask, you know, who did he ask? He asked the earth. You know, always here for us. And just look at our bodies. Our bodies are made of earth. Your body can be your benefactor. We certainly don't treat our bodies very well. Well, uh, we judge them a lot. We push them a lot. We can be very thankful 
or treat them like a benefactor. This practice can be very healing, even though, you know, you go through a lot doing it, but it's really, really heals, disconnect. The body is our home, the earth is our home. We have a hard time feeling like we belong in this culture, generally, not everybody. But it's like we don't get a sense that we belong in our body and that it's sacred, or that we belong on this earth and that it's sacred. So, you know, we can get so caught up in all kinds of stuff, but if you really feel like you hit these places of stuckness, you know, just go out and listen to a bird. Look at a puddle (laughs) or touch the earth as your witness to your goodness, to your willingness to go through this, to be free, to your courage. When I was in Honolulu a couple years ago, my um, ex's niece had a baby, and she asked me to come to her birth. And something happened, like when we were there at the birth center, where her husband somehow, I forget what happened now, but her husband had to leave for a while, and somehow who was supposed to come wasn't there, and I am no midwife, like, you know, I was sort of like left there with her. And there was a certain point where she looked at me and she said, "Um, I'm not doing this. I'm like, (laughs) I just didn't even know what to say. It's like, "Uh, I think you have to, you know. (laughs) It was such a funny moment, you know. I think you got to have to do this, you know. And then she's like, I'm not doing this. I'm going home. And I'm like, I really don't think you have an option here. You know, it's like, I think we really have to go through (laughs) this. And she hit this incredible doubt. And then it got okay again, and we were like breathing, 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 and then she hit another one. It's like right before the baby came out. She's like, I'm not doing this, I'm going home. And I'm like, I don't think we can really go home. I think we really have to stay with this, you know. Um, Well, that's what we're doing here. We're giving birth to loving kindness. We're giving birth to wisdom. And there'll be times where you'll just think, oh, this is too hard. I can't do this. And that's part of it. The doubt is part of it. The bigger the kind of birth process, the more we'll feel like, oh, it's like I can't do this. It's because we're the loving kindness does it. We can't do it. The loving kindness does it. We can't do it. The wisdom does it. You just kind of try to just really just punch in in the morning. Punch out at night. Do the best you can. Be gentle. Take your time with it. You can do it. I'd like to um, end with a poem by my favorite poet, Li Po, Chinese poet from long ago. And there's a lot, there's a 
benefactors in this poem. It's like the earth, if you listen to it carefully, the earth is his benefactor. And then the person who, who he's writing this to is his benefactor, his spiritual friend. Tufu. Tufu is his friend. To Tufu from Shantong. You ask how I spend my time. I nestle against a tree trunk, listening to autumn winds in the pines all day and night. Shantung wine can't make me drunk. The local poets bore me. My thoughts remain with you, like the Wen River, endlessly flowing. poem to his benefactor. Remember your benefactor is a lifeline. It's what makes life worth living. Let's sit for a minute. May we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. It's time for walking, and we're going to uh, learn a metta chant tonight at 9. Probably the sitting won't go all the way to 9.30, but it's a little bit longer than the chant we often do. It's a chant that um, in Burma, there's a um, metta chant campaign going on in the prisons. And this is the chant the the monks and nuns are doing in prison. They're being put in solitary for doing this chant. It's a beautiful chant. Um, And it takes some patience to learn it. We're not expecting you to... I don't even know this chant very well, but it's beautiful. So uh, we'll be doing it every night. 